Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, along with my colleague, Mike DeBernardis, partner at Hughes Hubbard, back for another issue of the Corruption Files. Today, we're going to take up the Oxip case. And this case has so many interesting angles. It's a case that keeps on giving. It's still giving. Uh, six years after the initial enforcement action from October 2016. Some of the background facts of this case include a uh, pretty hefty fine and penalty payment of $415 million back then. At one point, it was in the top 10 of FCPA enforcement actions. It was a three-year deferred prosecution agreement, a criminal plea on four counts, two FCPA conspiracy counts of books and records and internal controls component. There was an appointment of a three-year monitorship. There were individual settlements with OXIF's CEO, Daniel Ock, for $2.2 million and the CFO, former CFO, uh, Joel Frank, for $35,000. One of the most interesting components of this case was, was actual restitution paid to investors uh, in this case of $136 million. OXIF no longer exists as a company today, and Mike's going to tell us about one of the individuals who came under uh, some uh, scrutiny and pain uh, over this. It had some interesting uh, bribery schemes uh, involving um, someone who was identified as Israeli businessman number one, uh, who we now know to be Dan Gartner. And um, he was involved in corruption in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And then we had uh, a huge amount of uh, corruption in Libya with the Libyan Sovereign, the Sovereign Wealth Fund, the Libyan Investment Authority. So lots of bribes paid, uh, a lot of benefits to uh, the first case involving uh, hedge funds uh, and private equity uh, involved uh, in this matter. And... Uh, a juicy and delicious case. So, Mike, what interested you about this matter? You about this matter? Oh man, uh, am, I, am I limited to just one thing? Because because there's there's plenty here. I think um, you know, looking back on it after uh, you know after a number of years now, uh, a few things sort of jumped out to me. Um, one, and maybe this shouldn't be a surprise, given that this was a a very sophisticated hedge fund, very successful hedge fund. Um, but just how complex the, the schemes were um, here, you know, this is this was it, you have really have to read through the charging documents a few times to understand exactly how uh, the, the arrangements that that um, that Oxip had made with with Dan Gertler, with, uh, you know, it, it, various schemes in Libya and in and, and other places as well. Um, we're talking about, you, you know, uh, margin calls and, and, and all kinds of things that, that are just not standard in, in, in FCPA cases. So that, that was one thing that, that stood out to me. Um, and, and really, I think, you know, credit, give credit where credit's due. And I think that the, the folks, uh, at the SEC and the DOJ who, who did this investigation, you know, that there was a lot to unpack here and, and, and to wind down and, and they seem to have done it, done it really pretty well. Um, uh, the second, the second piece, and, and I, I'm not looking, I don't have any inside knowledge here. I'm not looking to, to sort of put excuses out there, but um, I think it's interesting to, to view this in the context, not when the, when the, when the resolution happened in 2016, but when the, when the conduct started, which was in the, you know, 07, 08 timeframe, you've got a hedge fund, the, you know, we're, we're just at the start of 
what was which become you know it's what's been termed the great recession uh you know all the news is breaking about Lehman Brothers really struggling, Bear Stearns, all of all of the the uh, the banks really struggling, and you had this situation for for Oxif where they're presented with these business opportunities, uh, and and you know to, to believe the the SEC documents, you know at the very top, um, Daniel Ock made the decision. He, he said, you know, I know there's red flags, but you guys have told me about the red flags. Let's move forward anyway. This sounds like a a, a place to make money, and I think. You know, we often talk in the abstract about, hey, where crisis can breed opportunity for 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 corruption, crisis can can breed incentive for corruption. And looking back on that, this this is potentially you know a clean example of that. It's, it's very easy to talk about that in the abstract. It's harder to kind of go back and and show it. Um, those are, those are two two things that come to mind. But you know, the other thing is this this case, the tentacles kind of expand, and and you know, it really. Um, you know, I was mentioning it to you to you before off air that it, it surprised me to, to realize that this was 2016. It seems like it was it was just yesterday, and I think that's partially because you know this, Dan Gertler's still in the news. They're still kind of working out uh, issues with him. Um, you have uh, two executives at, at Oxip who were were charged by the SEC and 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 uh, you know fought it and and actually ended up. Uh, having their their case dismissed because for statute of limitations reasons, and that just all happened in 2018. So this is still really uh, being unpacked and, and is still very current today. And um, I think that's that's sort of a sign of how impactful uh, and, and complex and wide ranging this was. So, Mike, the um, I remember when we studied this case at the time, there were so many red flags apparent. And there were so many opportunities for Oxif to uh, stop the conduct either before there was any illegal action or even after it was discovered. It led me to believe that was this really uh, corruption starting at the top of the organization and permeating down throughout the organization? Or was this something more around just missing internal controls or, or not looking hard enough? Yeah. So I, I think there's, there's different levels. And, and I, you know, I think actually if, if the DOJ and SEC tried to sort of make it uh, to differentiate a little bit, especially the SEC, right? I think it, so the SEC's position was Daniel Ock, the very top, he ignored red flags. All right. But he didn't have any direct knowledge of, of the, what was going on. But they had, you know, they were, <laughs> there was definitely red flags. They were running, running reports and they had, you know, they had information about, Dan Gertler, I think I saw that um, one of the the reports that got to, to Daniel Ock's desk, uh, you know, warned that this guy has got really serious political connections in DRC, and he, he himself should be considered a, a, a pep, a, a politically exposed person. Uh, and and basically, you know, these if you're familiar with them, often these reports, you know, stop short of of making any final judgments and just provide you the information. But, but this report almost said, you know, be very careful about dealing with this individual. Um, and he had, you know, his own people in his team, executives on his team saying, we shouldn't do this. This, this guy, I, I, we shouldn't touch this guy with a 10 foot pole. And Daniel, Ock, you know, sort of made the decision we're going to go for it anyway. Now the, there's no, no evidence that was presented that he knew that, that bribes were paid or were going to be paid. It was just ignoring red flags. And then we take a step down, though. Uh, you have have the the head of the London office, Cohen, uh, and then one of the analysts who was really 
busy in, in Africa. Barrows, who, who, you know, that the SEC certainly made a, made a case that both of them had had absolute knowledge that that these bribes were happening as they were issuing additional, you know, funding for for the JVs and in, in the DRC in particular, or you know, you know, providing addition uh, additional money on capital calls and, and that type of thing. So I think I think it goes both ways. I obviously the internal controls weren't perfect, and and Oxif ended up, um, you know, they they got a lot of credit for following, you know, this, this issue, improving their, their controls. And, and they had, I know they had, they had a monitorship uh, to improve it. So, so obviously they weren't perfect, but they did catch a lot of the, the, the low hanging fruit here. And I think it was, it was for the most part uh, pushed aside. So there were, uh, you talked about the bribery schemes and I want to focus on those for a few minutes because I think you're absolutely right. They were very sophisticated as Perhaps befitting a sophisticated private private equity or hedge company or hedge fund, but there are also, I thought, some important lessons for the compliance professional around the fact of the sophistication of the bribery schemes. And I want to start with the DRC. And here we basically had a blank check given to Gertner in the form of a convertible loan, and internally this was reviewed and a loan to a potential joint venture partner or other partner is certainly an acceptable business practice, but it has to have an appropriate risk management strategy or compliance terms and conditions around it. Then we had it reviewed, then it was reviewed by outside counsel, unidentified outside counsel in the settlement documents, but outside counsel uh, suggested that protections be put in place, that the loan proceeds could not be used or could be used for a limited number of specific um Items, but it couldn't be broadened out to really anything, and that those suggestions were not put in place. And so, for compliance professionals, they may not have looked at a convertible loan as potentially a pot of money to pay a bribe, but it shows number one, uh, you are only limited by your imagination in creating pots of money to pay bribes, and number two, that compliance professionals need to have visibility into not simply vetting due diligence partners, but the ongoing business relationships with uh, joint venture partners, because the joint venture created in DRC, OXIP was 40% owner, yet retained control over the joint venture. So how do you counsel clients to continue to review actions of a joint venture from the compliance perspective after the JV is signed and it's up and running? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, it, it's frankly it's easier if if you're returning if you retain even if as a minority shareholder if if you have control, it's much easier to 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 sort of monitor, um, you know, monitor everything whether it's it's books and records of of the joint venture, um, you know, ensuring that the joint venture itself is operating under some sort of compliance apparatus, whether they have their own compliance policies and procedures or they're 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 using. The policies and procedures of of the uh, of the joint venture participant, and then you know, depending on the risk profile, um, you know, especially when you're in control, doing audits, and that doesn't have to be doesn't have to be a hey, let's let's grab a team from a big four accounting firm and a law firm and send them out to DRC to to pour through our books and records. Um, you know, there there are things we talk to clients about all the time is there are various levels of of auditing. That what I just mentioned is is the highest level where you're you're really going in and you're turning the place upside down. 
but you can do you can do spot checks on certain transactions you can do you know sampling from a distance you you know there's there's everything in between you can do you could do a, an audit that's really focused on interviewing the employees and making sure they understand the compliance requirements and 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 are following them and that's a, that's a really good way to sort of keep an eye on a, an entity like a joint venture it becomes more complicated when you are not in control of the joint venture you know we we often talk to clients when we can uh and, and try try to work that out in advance of the forming the joint venture in terms of building in contractual protections making sure your joint venture partner uh, itself is is willing uh to 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 make sure that the joint venture is is under strict control and um you know make sure you find a joint venture partner that that approaches uh compliance in the same way you do so it, but but admittedly it is it is far more complicated in a situation where maybe you don't have control of the JV. So the um, loan ended up being literally just a blank check. And there were three or four indicia of bribes paid to the DRC government to obtain contracts from this joint venture. And it really speaks to what we've just talked about, the need for ongoing due diligence, but ongoing management of the relationship beyond the due diligence. And I often tell people that even if you go through the first four steps and the five step of the life cycle of a third-party agent, uh, your work starts when the contract's signed. And for a joint venture, your work starts when uh, the joint venture is formed and up and running. And I thought that was a great lesson also from the DRC aspect. Let me turn to Libya because there we had a little bit more um, traditional bribery and corruption. Uh, here we had a corrupt third-party agent who was used to secure investments with the Libyan Investment Authority, and we had someone who had uh, no due diligence performed on them, and then uh, no written contract, and literally millions of dollars were paid to this agent with the knowledge uh, that it would be paid uh, as a bribe. So, um, so once again. I don't think we can actually say enough about the need for due diligence around third parties and then man, indicia of a real relationship. We don't have a written contract and you're a multi-million dollar multinational company. Uh, that is unusual. That is unusual. Yeah. And, and when, you know, I think if I, if I, if I have the numbers right, they, they paid this agent somewhere in the ballpark of, you know, $3.7 million or something. Um, it's a big number to pay without a contract. That's, that's not quite a, you know, a, a, a purchase order type, type number. Um, so, so a absolutely, um, you know, it, this is, I think for as complex as, as the conduct was in DRC, the, the Libya, the conduct in Libya shapes up to, to be more of a traditional type of FCPA situation, right? They, they engaged a, they engaged an agent. They really wanted this investment. From the Libyan Investment Authority, they engaged an agent. They said, "Hey, you're, if we get we get this investment, you're going to make four million dollars, whatever it was." They paid they paid it out into I think the British Virgin Islands is is where they ultimately paid paid the guy. So it kind of just all the red flags that 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 you you see typically in these third party situations uh, were were present in Libya, and it's really harder. You know where where you can say in the DRC, all right, you ignored red flags. You 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 know they they it, 
ultimately, though, when you look at it, it was it was very complex how the corruption piece worked. This was this was a lot lot more straightforward. And I think the this is this is one of the things that the SEC grabbed onto uh, when they decided to charge uh, Mr. Cohen, who was who was um, allegedly the the sort of mastermind behind this and the one that was dealing with the agent was that this is. This is pretty clear what was going on here. Uh, this case also had one other very unique aspect, Mike, and that I mentioned that in the opening, which was restitution to investors. Restitution was paid under something called the Mandatory Victims Restitution Act, which allows restitution to victims of white collar crimes, specifically including the FCPA. What is um, what is one of the hurdles that typically has to be overcome is to show direct uh, harm from bribery and corruption of either the theft of a contract, theft of business, or, or something under the FCPA. And here, the restitution, when I say investors, I don't mean investors in Oxip. I mean investors in a competitor who lost contracts in Libya due to the bribery and corruption of Oxip. So we had a defined group of individuals, not a country. We had a defined set of contracts or business opportunities, and we had restitution paid to those uh, companies or individuals who could show actual harm. And uh, it may be a limited set of, of groups or individuals who can avail themselves of this going forward, but I think it, it really needs to, to be on every white-collar defense attorney's radar and certainly the compliance professionals out there as well. Have, have you had discussions either internally or with clients about this possibility? Uh, you know, honestly, not not much. I mean, the, the reality is it doesn't, it, it's not used much. Um, and, and it's one of the, you know, if, if you, if you, that there's a group that are a pretty large group that, that pretty are, are pretty critical of the FCPA and kind of how it's used and how it's enforced. And I would say one of the one of the complaints is, you know, why why is the the U.S. government um, raking in, you know, two hundred million dollars from from Oxif when they're not the ones who were who were harmed, right? It's a it's a windfall in in that sense. Uh, shouldn't we? Shouldn't there be a better, bigger effort to make sure the money goes to victims, whether that's a defined group. I, I think that's one of the unique things of this case and probably why it was used in this case is that they could find a, a very specific and defined group and they could uh, calculate the exact harm, right? Which is, which is part of the problem in a normal case. If you have a, you know, if you have a, a case with a, with a corrupt minister in a country who, who's taken bribes for contracts, it can be hard to, to figure out, you know, if you can say the general population's a victim, but it can be hard to sort of calculate what that would be and how to, the actual mechanics about paying that back. Um, but this is, this is something that, that we know is out there as, as practitioners. Um, it, it, the, the reason it's used so little, I think, in the FCPA context is because it, it really takes a, a very specific set of facts like we had here. To, to make it work. I certainly would if, if as we were doing our investigation and, and sort of saw a fact pattern play out, um, would talk to a, to a client about it as, as a possibility, but it's, it's not one that I've had that's come up in any investigations I've done where we've had this sort of very defined group of victims that, that we thought this could come into play. Like a lot of the commentary in 2016 when the enforcement action was initially announced was around 
uh, the fact this was a, a private equity company, a hedge fund with m- numerous portfolio companies. Uh, and the emphasis was that private equity needed to be have visibility and oversight over private equity companies, certainly from the compliance perspective. Uh, the fact that uh, the SEC would take on what was in a major hedge fund and uh, go to the mat uh, to get this type, type of award uh, or, or enforcement action, rather. Uh, did you believe or find this to be uh, really a change or something new that you needed to bring to a new set of of companies or clients uh, to make them aware of their potential exposure at that time? Or were you guys talking about this for a long time? Were you guys talking about this for a long time? Yeah, I think, I don't remember this being a sea change in the way we talked to, to clients or potential clients about it. I do know, you know, especially when you think about it in terms of the, the portfolio companies and, um, you know, I, I, I'm going to get it wrong. I think maybe in Gabon, uh, there was a they they had a, a a scheme that was really being executed by a portfolio company there. So this is a company that that Oxip had had invested in, uh, and basically um, they were they were charged with a lack of internal controls because they kept providing capital to this this entity in Gabon um, without basically without confirming that that this entity in Gabon was was operating in the right way. And it turns out that the entity in Gabon was not, and they had hired an agent. Uh, we're paying them millions of dollars and, and likely for, for, for bribery. Uh, and so, you know, we had, we had and still do get questions from, from, from clients, whether they're, they're in the financial sector, right? Banks or, or whatever about what's our exposure. If, if we are, if we're lending money, what's our exposure? If, if the, you know, the recipient of those funds uses it inappropriately. If we are providing, you know, funds to, to the, in this situation, to a portfolio company, what's our exposure? And I think, I think this case is an extreme example of it, but, it, but it, it provides that, that example to those clients of, you know, here's, here's the, 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 the outcome. Here's, here is, uh, what can possibly happen, um, if you're providing those funds without asking any questions or, or doing any, any proper diligence or making sure that there's controls in place. For how those those funds are used, like there was, um, like there was um, an increase, or rather a um, increase, or rather remedy. Part of Oxy's own remedy, which was approved by the SEC, was a list of requirements applicable to risk high risk transactions. And some of these, I think, are things we had seen before. But there were two that really struck me because in reviewing this matter for this podcast, because this was 2016, and I don't think we were talking about these items in 2016. Number one was checking and confirming due diligence on an ongoing basis. And then as part of that due diligence, also reviewing monies paid out by your business partners. So if you're in a joint venture, you're in a, another type of business partnership, uh, exercising your audit rights and checking monies paid out. And thinking back, this is one of the first times I saw sort of the ongoing nature of these two. And those I think are are almost accepted as standard or best practices now. Are those things you are still counseling clients to to try to not only get in terms of compliance terms and conditions, but to exercise those rights? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I don't, I, I can't, uh, I can't recall whether this this is the first time I saw it or I had seen it before. My, my your memory is better than mine, but uh, absolutely, this is now. 
standard, especially especially when we're talking about higher risk third parties, which which the ones that we're talking about in this case were right an, an agent being paid millions of dollars in Libya that would go into a to a high risk category. Uh, you know, a third party in in the DRC. Um, I've been there. It's a tough place place to operate. Um, uh, 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 an agent in in Gabon. I think it was the former prime minister's son, you know, that's, that's where these we're, we're talking about the highest risk third parties. And it's so, especially when we're talking in that category, um, it's, it's almost, it's almost a requirement when you're, when you're that category of risk, uh, to, to not only build in the audit rights, but to exercise them. And, and again, there's, when you're, when you're talking about audit rights in the same way as auditing a joint venture, when you're talking about auditing a, a, a third party, there's levels to it. And so it's not, you know, I think a lot of, a lot of companies um, get scared off by this idea that it's this huge exercise and it's incredibly invasive. It can be, I mean, part of it's, there's going to be some disruption and, and invasion involved, but, you know, check, checking payments of your third party uh, can, can be really pretty quick and you can do it remotely and, and, um, or, you know, having a regular, you know, a lot of our clients have, have interviews before, by by us before they engage a uh, a higher risk third party so that we can ask the right questions and and engage whether um you know the third party's been honest in the due diligence process having that happen again you know on an annual basis you know a biannual basis however often these are the kind of steps that we really encourage for the highest risk third parties to make sure that that things are going the the way you expected when you completed due diligence the uh, issue of audit rights uh was you know, a fair amount of discussion, certainly at the end of the first decade of this century and into the first half of the last decade. And my response was always the following. In 2006, for my sins, I was assigned to procurement at Alibur. And they sent me over there. And uh, it was a bunch of women in a room with stacks of documents. And when I went in and introduced myself, they all came over and hugged me. Because they said, we've never had a lawyer before. Uh, this is great. So I started, <laughs> I learned about supply chain and I started looking through these contracts. Every contract, and I want to emphasize the word, every contract had audit rights. And I tell people in every procurement contract you have, you always have audit rights. You always have the right to audit for any monies you pay to assure that you receive those product services. This is not new. It's simply now you're auditing to make sure the monies you paid have not been used to pay fund bribes or corruptions. And uh, that sometimes was persuasive, but companies have always had audit rights. What you are correct in noting is they may not have exercised those rights. And I think that's what the DOJ really told us. Uh, this case was one of the cases that told us, but they've made clear you have to exercise those audit rights. And OXIF makes clear in the high risk transactions, you, you do have to exercise those because you have to see where that money is going. So uh, that's always a, a lesson that I draw from this case. Mike, this uh, this turned out to be a, a fascinating case in many ways. Uh, I frankly hadn't remembered just how crazy and insane it was and how important it was at, at that time. Do you have maybe any final thoughts on on what it's meant to you and kind of reviewing it now in, in, uh, in preparation for this podcast? Yeah, it was it was great to go back and look at this. It was I, I remember at the time having lots of conversations when this case came out, but that's not always the case, right? There's there's you know 
especially in the 2016, 2017 timeframe when we had just a lot of FCPA cases happening. Um, but this one certainly caught our attention because it was, it was different, right? We're talking about a, a you know, someone in the, the, the financial sector in a different way. The, the players were very large, right? Uh, you know, Daniel Locke himself is, is a very sort of large character. Uh, Gertler is, is, you know, like I said, uh, if, if, if the listeners have an hour to spare, go and, and, and Google him and, and find, you know, recent stuff. He was sanctioned by the U S then got off the sanction, uh, during the Trump administration. It's been reinstated and he's, he's, uh, still the U S is still sort of chasing him. Um, you know, you've got these agents in Libya and Gabon. So it was fascinating. I remember it being fascinating at the time, uh, Going back and looking at it again, I I'd sort of it was nice to 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 rem remember why it was so fascinating in terms of the complexity and the sophistication of the bribery schemes, just the the amounts of, involved, and just how, how how sort of big and relevant this was. Um, really, really was was interesting, and and kind of just you know some of the lessons we've we've talked about, sort of remembering them and and how they they sort of stand out in this case, uh, is was was really good exercise. I guess what, one more sort of nugget that, that I found in this case that I had forgotten about is one of the red flags that the, the charging documents talk about with respect to Gabon. Again, I think uh, it was the, the prime minister's, the former prime minister's son, who was the agent there. Um, he, he refused to sign anti-corruption uh, as anti-corruption certification. And they you know, said, okay, whatever, we'll, we'll move forward anyway. And I, you know, we, we, that's pretty standard now, this anti-corruption certifications for, you know, I, a lot of our clients basically do it for every contract they're going to enter into. And you, you sometimes get, get uh, people joking or asking like, who's not going to sign this? You know, of course they're going to sign this, but it happens, right? It, it does happen. And I, I if, if there's one, if there's one sort of uh, risk that I think is, it, I, I shouldn't, I shouldn't limit it to one. Let me just say that to me, that's one of those, you're off the table. If you're not willing to sign this document to say that you, you won't violate anti-corruption laws, it, it, that's, that's sort of a, a non-starter for me. There's a lot of, a lot of other red flags that you can mitigate. That's, that's not one of them. Uh, and I, I, it was, it was funny to go back and, and realize that, that that was part of this case. And it's a, it's a good example to give clients when they, when they joke about, uh, how, how anybody would, would sign these Mike, documents. this uh, turned out to be a fascinating case, and Mike I look forward uh, to uh, seeing what uh, we come up with next time. Yeah, thanks, Tom. It was fun.